Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Wise, and I want to thank you very much for listening today. If you love Texas history as much as I do, and I know you do, pull up a chair and let's learn something about a very, very funny Texas history story. Now, before we get started, I want to mention something to you. This, uh, I want to hear from you about what you think about this podcast. I want to hear some ideas for some shows. We're up to 24 episodes now, and some of these episodes have been a direct result of people talking to me or emailing me their ideas for some show episodes. So feel free to do that. We're always looking for good stories. I've got quite the list of topics to start covering, and I can always use some more. I also want to hear from you about your Texas history story. What connection do you have to Texas history? And you can email me at host at wiseabouttexas.com. We've got a Facebook page, Wise About Texas. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Wise About Texas. And, of course, the website, www.wiseabouttexas.com. I'm uh, thinking about changing that up a little bit, enhancing the website, putting some features on there. So leave a comment on there and uh, let me know what you think. Also, go to iTunes if you get a minute. Click on iTunes if you're on your computer and leave a review of the show. I appreciate the reviews that we've gotten so far. We're at five stars, and I I hope you continue to like what I'm doing over here. Now, you'll never miss an episode of Wise About Texas, by the way, if you'll subscribe to the podcast. And you can do that through your phone on iTunes. Just hit subscribe, or you can go to the website, and there's some links on there. Pick your favorite platform, Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn. We're on all the major platforms, so go over to the website and click that subscribe icon. It's right there on the first page. Well, one more thing before we get started. Uh, I've asked you, the listeners, some questions about where to take this podcast. You know, the number of downloads of this podcast is far, far more than I ever thought we would have. I started this thing as a fun project to preserve and promote Texas history, and it's really taken off. And uh, I'm going to be announcing some new things that I'm doing with the show. And uh, don't worry, we're not going to change the show. We're just going to enhance it a little bit. And uh, as it has taken off, I'm going to add, I'm thinking about adding some interviews. Uh, We've got a few more patrons of the show. This uh, recording, this thing takes some equipment and um, some expense to host it. And so as the, as the patrons increase, uh, we'll start expanding the show and, and we're about ready to start doing some interviews. So I'm looking for some Good ideas on that, and uh, you can become a patron of Wise About Texas at www.patreon.com slash wiseabouttexas, so think about that. And also let me know what you're up to around Texas. Uh, If you attend an event, visit a historic site, you learn a new Texas story, tweet the show at Wise About Texas. Let us know what you're up to. I'll try to do the same. Uh, You may have noticed I've put some stuff on the website and on Twitter recently, the Supreme Court Historical Society events, the Bryan Museum, Galen, Galveston, Gator Fest. I was at Indianola last week for a little trip that gave rise to this episode and uh, try to put some pictures up there, and I want to see what you're doing around Texas. All right, well, this week we're going to talk about um, a famous Texas story, but we're going to do it wise about Texas style. This is in Wikipedia. We're going to go deep as usual. And when you dig deep into Texas history, you find some interesting things. And today is certainly no exception. So we're going to go back to the 1850s to get wise about Texas. 
Now, you know Texas history is funny. We've got a bunch of quirky and unique stories in this state. And if somebody was going to try to do something or invent something or try something that may not engender a lot of public confidence um, or something that maybe everybody says can't be done, well, where do you think they come? They come to Texas. And think about the wildcatters in our history, the oil industry, the things we invented uh, to get the oil out of the ground, space flight started here. Uh, we landed a man on the moon. The first words he spoke were Houston. Think about the medical innovations that have occurred in Texas and and uh, especially the, the heart surgery, all the great things that the medical center is doing. There was even a time, and I'll do an episode on this in the future, where we were trying to create rain. Uh, so when Texas has that spirit going on, why not a grand military experiment. If you're going to do that, of course you're going to do it in Texas, and that's today's story. And to get to the story, we need to look at three issues, and here they are. We need to look at military transportation, we need to look at the Texas climate, and we need to look at the Arabian and North African desert, or the area they used to call the Levant. And we're going to tie all those together. First, military transportation. Now, the key to military success, or certainly a key to military success, is the ability to move your men, your material, your food, all your supplies to the front lines. And as your army advances, and uh, hopefully your army will be advancing, then you're going to get further and further away from your source of supply. So you're going to need to be able to move those supplies forward. Now, I'm always amazed by the military logistics guys. You think about back in World War II and fighting on in two theaters, the Pacific and Europe, and what it took to move all that stuff to all those faraway places. And you think about D-Day and just the sheer size of that operation and everything that went into that. Military logistics is very important. There are textbooks on military logistics. I looked up, um, went to the West Point curriculum catalog, and uh, they teach classes specifically on military logistics because it's very important. And even the Texas Revolution, which we've talked about, you remember that Santa Ana got further and further away from his supply lines, and there was some thinking that Sam Houston's idea when he was retreating back to the Sabine River that part of that was to get Santa Ana stretched very thin. There was even, uh, back in the episode that we did, that I did on um, the siege of Bejar, we talked about the grass fight where the Mexican army had to go out and forage for food for the horses and every, everything in Bejar, and they came back with that wagon train full of grass that we thought had a bunch of silver on it. And uh, anytime you're stretching those supply lines and needs, pretty thin, you leave yourself vulnerable. In fact, burning Vince's bridge at San, San Jacinto, now that we're talking about it, had a lot to do with that. You know, Koss uh, reinforced the, the Mexican army at San Jacinto the morning of April 21st with a few hundred men, and that uh, gave Deef Smith and Sam Houston the idea that we needed to burn that bridge so there wouldn't be any more men, there wouldn't be any more supplies, and Santa Ana would be cut off. So it's always been a very, very important part of any fighting. Well, there was a problem in the American West as we expanded in the mid-1800s to the Pacific. Now, we had all this frontier out there, and this is after the Mexican War and after the treaty that 
gave us California, and we had all this territory all the way to the Pacific, but it was largely unexplored. Now, it was boundless opportunity for sure, but it was also uh, presented some problems. And one of those problems was you had to go secure your border. And to do that, you had to move men and material out to these frontier areas. There were two ways, basically, to get to California. You could either take a ship around South America in Cape Horn. Now, that's one of the most dangerous places to sail in the world and a dicey proposition at best and would take months to get to supplies around that way. Or you could go overland, but there was no railroad at this time. We didn't have the Transcontinental Railroad. And there weren't even really that many routes to the West Coast. So they had a real problem. And if you think about the climate in Texas, if you move just in Texas, forget the rest of the country, just think about Texas. As you move from East Texas to West Texas, you know, in East Texas, you've got the woods, you got plenty of water, you got plenty of plants. Um, so you can go take an easy day's ride. You'll have plenty of grass you have plenty of wood for your fire. You'll have plenty of water and you can go as far or not as, you know, as short or as long a distance as you want a day and you're going to be just fine. But as you get further west, that water got scarce. And of course, in in West Texas, it's, it was very scarce. And so not only was it unexplored, uh, but the distance between water was greater. And if you didn't, if you had to make a dry, a dry camp, in other words, if you couldn't camp near water, you had to haul water with you. And that was a real problem. And so your, your writing, your travel was based on the next water stop. And anybody with knowledge of the watering holes, and if you go back and you read the accounts of exploring the West, exploring Texas and, and the desert area of the Southwest, you read about the, the watering holes were the big deal and battles were fought over those watering holes. Um, so as... Texas expanded the frontier, and the U.S. Army, you know, Texas joins the Union in 1846, and the U.S. Army starts building these forts, and they built a sort of a line of forts on the western frontier of Texas uh, to allow the frontier to expand and, and to guard against the Indians. Well, what they discovered was, you know, there wasn't a lot of water out there, of course, and the distance between the watering spots was fairly great, and you add to that uh, the problem, the Indian problem, and they were having to fight in those conditions, uh, which made it even harder. They also, uh, as part of that Western expansion of the U.S., needed to locate lines for railroads to expand the railroad network west, and of course the Transcontinental Railroad was the holy grail of all of that, and they needed to create roads for settlements. So despite the fact that the conditions were very harsh, uh, they had that problem. They needed to get that done. So there was a problem that needed solving. So you've got a transportation problem, you've got a climate problem, and now we visit that third issue I mentioned, which is the Levant or the Arabian Desert, the African Desert. For thousands of years in that area of the world, camels had been domesticated and used for transportation. They raced them, they used them for entertainment, and they even used them for food. Uh, camels for food. Think about that for a second. Um, and so let me introduce you to the camel. 
Um, the camels come basically in two varieties, one hump or two. The one humped camel are, is called the Arabian camel or the dromedary camel. And the two humped camel is called the Bactrian camel. And then what you can do with these, can, uh, the, I'm going to tell you, I didn't think when I was researching Texas history I'd be talking about camels, but here we are. If you cross that Arabian camel or that dromedary with a Bactrian, you can get the largest, that F1 cross, uh, which is the first generation of those crosses, will be larger. It'll be uh, a one-humped, larger, stronger camel. So that's a good, as many F1s are when you're breeding animals, that's a good combination. So everybody on board with the one-humped Arabian or dromedary and the two-humped Bactrian, and then you have those crosses. Well, camels, camels were famous uh, for being able to carry large loads. And, of course, we all know they're very famous for their endurance. They can go long distances without water. And uh, that obviously paid off in those desert climates. So why not bring them to the United States uh, and to Texas? Now, Texas was not the first to come up with this idea. In fact, um, and, and again, I didn't think I'd be talking about camels researching Texas history, but I darn sure didn't think I'd be going back to 1708. I was reading the other day a book written in 1708. And uh, in 1701, that book said, camels were brought to Virginia from Guinea. And they, they didn't, there was nothing more than that. The record doesn't reflect what happened to those camels. But... There's also no record of camels running around Virginia, so you can imagine that maybe the experiment failed. But in 1701, some people did try to bring camels to the United States and Virginia, and they had brought them to Barbados around the same time in the, in the Caribbean. Um, now, the, the history of the camels in Barbados talked about the specialized care that the camels required didn't really make them suited to the environment, so maybe that's what happened in Virginia. Um, there was a another northeastern experiment there was a company chartered in 1854 called the American Camel Company and it was chartered in New York and and that happened after uh, a report to Congress that I'm going to talk about here in a minute so let's come back to Texas and uh, in 1836 there was a major George Crossman and George Crossman had fought in the Indian Wars in Florida uh, with Zachary Taylor, who would go on to be president, and Crossman had advocated the use of camels for transportation in Florida, and that never happened, but he was in favor of it. And most stories you read about the Texas camels talk about Jeff Davis, uh, Jefferson Davis, but this is wise about Texas, so we're going to dig a little deeper. And so remember that name, George Crossman. Well, let's talk now about Jefferson Davis because he's most often associated with the Texas camels. And Jefferson Davis uh, had served in the Mexican War. In fact, he was in command of an enormous number of Mississippi volunteers who had volunteered to go to war with Mexico. And at the Battle of Buena Vista, the Americans under the command of General Zachary Taylor, there he is again, were in trouble from none other than our friend Santa Ana. And the American line had broken at one point. General Taylor ordered uh, Jefferson Davis to fill it. And Davis had put his men in a specific formation and ended up saving the day. So well before he was president of the Confederate States of America, Jefferson Davis was a United States Army war hero. 
Well, Davis had some interesting connections. First, he was Zachary Taylor's son-in-law. He had married Zachary Taylor's daughter. Now, she died a few months into their marriage, uh, but he was closely connected to General and later President Taylor. And for this story's purposes, Davis also met none none other than General Crossman, the camel advocate. And he met him in that Mexican War. So you can imagine that they had talked about camels, particularly fighting where they were fighting. Well, later, there was an archaeologist named George Glidden who had lived in the Middle East, and he also was advocating the use of camels in the U.S., and that was in 1852. The Senate Committee on Military Affairs heard a presentation from George Glidden on the use of camels. Now, Jefferson Davis had been a senator from Mississippi, He had been on the Committee for Military Affairs. Now, he was out of the Senate by the time that report was delivered, but there's no doubt that he heard about that report. Uh, Now, Davis became the Secretary of War under Franklin, President Franklin Pierce, in 1853, and he made an annual report as a Cabinet Secretary, and in his annual report in 1853, he mentioned the use, uh, the possibility of using camels, So that was all happening at the same time, and he continued to advocate for that. So camels had become a thing and a topic of discussion amongst the U.S. military. And finally, in 1855, Congress, the U.S. Congress, appropriated the money, and now we had to go out and get the camels for this experiment. Well, one does not travel to one's local PetSmart and buy a camel. Uh, There were no camels in the United States. So Jefferson Davis selected a gentleman named Henry Wayne. Wayne had been a West Point graduate, just like Davis. He had served in the Mexican War, just like Davis, and he knew General Crossman. So he was in what we'll call the Camel Club, and he was put in charge of this project. So Henry Wayne got a naval ship called the Supply, the USS Supply, and the commander of the Supply was Lieutenant David Porter. Now, Porter's an interesting guy. Porter's father, also named David, was a famous Commodore, Commodore David Porter. And young David began sailing with his dad at age 10. He was a brother by adoption to Navy Admiral David Farragut. Now, David Farragut was the guy who said, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead at the Battle of Mobile Bay. And Farragut was the first admiral in the Texas Navy. Well, they, um, not the Texas Navy, excuse me, Freudian slip there, the United States Navy. Uh, Farragut was the first admiral, and David Porter was the second. So they were the first two admirals in the United States Navy. Porter went on to be superintendent of the Naval Academy and had a, a tremendous record of service. So that was a heck of a family, a naval family there. Uh, but first, when Porter was but a lowly lieutenant, he was a camel shipper. So Wayne went ahead of the, of the supply uh, to educate himself about the camels. He went to England. He went to France. He talked to military officers there about using camels. He hooked up with the, with the ship in Italy in June of 1855. Well, Porter, when he arrived in Italy, had been talking to an Italian aristocrat who had about 1,000 camels and was using them in the Tuscan, Tuscany region of Italy. And so he, too, was learning about these camels. Well, he and Wayne got together and decided that they needed to test out, uh, test a camel on the ship, since they were going to have to haul however many they got 
back to the United States. So they sailed the supply to Tunis, and they picked one up. They got him a test camel, and the local governor in Tunis gave him two more. So they put the camels on the ship and sailed the supply to Constantinople. They arrived in October, and they were doing some more research, and they wanted to buy some more camels. Uh, the sultan in Constantinople didn't have any handy to sell them, uh, they were in Asia, and they were going to have to wait on the camels to get back. So they didn't want to wait, so that transaction didn't work. In the meantime, the three camels that they had with them had gotten so fat on the ship that they decided they needed to sell them, so they ended up selling them to a butcher who was very excited to have such uh, lovely fat camels. And they took the supply, and they went on to Egypt to get some more. Uh, well, there was an embargo in Egypt. They didn't want to sell they didn't want to export any animals. So after some intense negotiations, uh, they did manage to get a permit for 10 camels. Uh, but the local commander, I think he was called a viceroy, was, was fairly interested that the great United States of America was experimenting with camels. So he proposed that he would give them six more. He would just uh, make a gift of six more camels. So Major Wayne and Lieutenant Porter were excited about that, of course. And they expected, being representatives of the United States government, to get some of the best camels that the, that the Egyptian uh, officer had. Uh, but they ended up with six uh, of the most broken-down, horrible animals you can imagine. Their heads were hanging low. They couldn't even raise them. They were terrible. And they were infected with what's called the itch. So Wayne said, no, thank you. We're not interested in your gift. Uh, the viceroy realized he'd made a mistake, blamed his subordinates, of course and uh, made it right with six decent camels. So uh, they took off with their load of camels in January of 1856. Let me mention the itch right quick. Since I learned this about camels, I just can't resist sharing it. The itch is something that it's a skin disease that a camel gets. And the hair, their hair falls off, their skin gets all hard, and it's very contagious. Um, and when camels are in close proximity or they're in, they're in cities or they're in stables, uh, then they're liable to get this. I ended up as a service to you, the listener, reading a report from Egypt from 1847 talking about camel itch. So if you got any questions about that, you just feel free to email me uh, about the camel itch. It does take 18 months, roughly, for the treatment to work. You can cure these camels, but it was so, it, you know, camels being beasts of burden, uh, they're basically useless if they get this disease. So that was a big concern of everyone. And the other way, the other thing was you treat it by with a combination of sulfur and you make a kind of a poultice or paste with sulfur and it's just horrible. And so you wanted to avoid the itch. Anyway, they get on the supply with their camels and they head on to Smyrna because they're going to get some more. And they had sent someone ahead, by the way, uh, to, to go ahead and start the purchase process so when the ship got there they could load them up. Now, think about putting a camel on a ship. They had to invent a way to do this. So David Porter uh, ended up building a small flat-bottom boat and on this, so you could sail it right up to the beach. And on the flat-bottom boat, he built a cage. Uh, so he invented the camel transport lighter. And uh, that worked. And they got all their camels together, and they ended up with 33 and they headed for Texas. Now, the voyage of the supply to Texas with their 33 camels is a pretty interesting story. The first problem they had 
was that they were keeping the camels. They decided to keep the camels below the deck. And so they arranged below the top deck. So they arranged a stable. They called it the camel deck. And they, they basically built a stable inside the ship. But one of the camels that they had was seven foot five inches tall. And he was about 10 feet long. So he was one of these huge camels. So they had to cut a hole in the top deck so the camel's hump could stick out. So you can imagine what that looks like. Uh, the weather was horrible almost the whole way. Uh, so they eventually, they had to tie the camels down to the ship because of the weather. And so they got the camels to kneel down in a position where you load the camel. So when you're putting a load on a camel, you get the camel to fold his legs up and basically lay down on the ground. You load them up and then you get them up. So they ended up uh, tying these camels to the deck in that kneeling position. And I'll put a picture of that on the website. And that actually worked out pretty well. They, they, uh, they did well in that circumstance. Um, I should mention also that they had hired some uh, local camel keepers to go with them. So they weren't learning this on the fly. They had some people with some experience with the camels. They also built a tent on the top deck of the ship above the stable. Uh, they had cut a hatch in the top deck in addition to that hole for that big camel's hump. Uh, they had cut a hatch so they could load the camels in. And uh, they built a tent on the top deck and so they could keep that hatch open and they could keep, even in bad weather, they could keep the the uh, camel deck well ventilated, which if you've ever been around a camel, and I have happened to have been around a couple of camels, uh, they are somewhat aromatic, shall we say. And so it was always good to keep air circulating through that. Well, Porter was so, or, so organized that he instituted the rules and regulations for the camel deck. And he was uh, very organized in how he took care of the camels and the procedures. Uh, they had hired a camel doctor from Turkey. Uh, he proved to be mostly uh, useless. He would uh, A camel would get sick. He'd tickle his nose with a certain kind of feather or whatever. That obviously did not cure the camel, so they fired the camel doctor and told him to go sit in the corner, and, and Porter organized the care of the camels. And they did very well. And, and a couple of babies were born, baby camels were born on the voyage, and they would run around the camel deck and amuse the crew. And one other thing about camels, one of the things that camels were used for in the Arabian area was entertainment. And one of the ways that they would entertain was they would wrestle. Camels would will naturally... Uh, fight during the rutting season and so you could train them to wrestle and they would wrestle by you know intertwining their necks and kind of slapping each other with their necks and whatever and so uh, one of the baby camels the one of the camel keepers taught this baby to wrestle and uh, the baby took to it so well that they eventually had to tie him up because this baby camel would run around and just beat the crud out of the crew uh, all in good fun. Well, that ship, the supply, finally arrived in Indianola in May of 1856. Now, uh, we're in the mid-1800s in Indianola. Galveston, of course, is a port, and Indianola is also a very popular port in a growing city. They called it the Queen City of the West, and yes, of course, I'll do a Texas Towns episode on Indianola because it was one of Texas's major cities up until the late 1800s hurricanes. So the ships arrived in Indianola, and actually they were in Pascavallo in April 1856, but they couldn't get into the bay. So uh, Porter sailed the supply back to New Orleans and transferred all those camels to lighters and ran them back over to Indianola. 
And really what gave me the idea to tell this story in this episode, I was at Indianola last week. It's uh, This episode's uh, two weeks ago, excuse me. Uh, this episode uh, is being released on September 26th, 2016. So a couple of weeks ago, I was down in Indianola and uh, took some pictures and, and um, there stood where the camels stood when they got off the boat. And there's a monument to them, which I'll put a picture of on the website. Um, so they landed those camels at Indianola. There was actually money left in the appropriation for these camels. So uh, they ordered the supply immediately back across the ocean to get some more camels. And in the meantime, the people of Indianola were absolutely dumbstruck at the sight of these animals. Now you think about this. In the 1800s in Texas, nobody there had seen a camel. I mean, at most, somebody might have seen a drawing of a camel, maybe. But, I mean, you can imagine a camel is a fairly awkward-looking animal anyway. And if you've never seen one, and all of a sudden these things start coming off the ship, I mean, that's got to be just the sight of your life. So the camels, when they got off the ship, they were so happy to be on land that they started jumping around and, you know, getting crazy and of course the people were just fleeing in terror at the sight of these strange beasts jumping around plus they're huge the soldiers in the town wouldn't go anywhere near these camels so finally Wayne and the others got the camels corralled uh, a little bit west of Indianola they built a pen for them and they got them stable and Major Wayne uh, organized an exercise program for these camels so he would walk these things through town and of course that created all kinds of problems because the horses immediately when they smelled these things much less saw them just went nuts and would run away so they had to send somebody ahead of the camels to warn everybody to get off the road that the camels were coming through town so i mean i really wish we'd have had photography back then to see a picture of this but um they would walk them through town and and uh finally got to the point where they thought they were ready to move them. So Wayne decided they were going to move them to San Antonio. And about June, they left for San Antonio, and it took forever. I mean, they did, they were learning how to put the saddles on them. The saddles weren't fitting right. They weren't riding them, but the, the saddles for the, uh, for the loads, and, you know, the loads were shifting. They were trying to learn how to manage them. The roads were terrible. Uh, the camels, though, did fairly well. Um, and Wayne decided to stop them. The, the problem was really that they just were getting acclimated to Texas. So Wayne stopped them for a few days, let them graze, let them get used to the, to the, uh, Texas flora and fauna and, and camels eat almost anything. And Texas has a lot of almost anything. So, uh, the camels did pretty well. Uh, they did have one funny experience. They, they didn't think any of the camels were pregnant. Uh, but one of the females laid down and had a baby, much to the surprise of the entire troop. So you can imagine what that was like. Well, San Antonio, the city of San Antonio, donated some land for the camels to camp on. Well, the land was up in San Pedro, near San Pedro Springs. Now, you'll remember San Pedro Springs uh, from the episode on the history of rodeo. That's the area where Jack Hayes organized the rodeo with the Vaqueros and the Comanches and the Rangers. But it, it turns out, in reading accounts of the time, 
one of my favorite descriptions of the problems with the San Pedro camp was that it was, quote, too close to town for men and animals, close quote. So that wasn't going to work out. In the meantime, they had decided that the permanent camp for these camels would be a new army post called Camp Verde, which is near present-day Kerrville. And Verde, of course, is the Spanish word for green. It was in an area called Green Valley. And so they went to Camp Verde, and they built this huge corral, and they put a water well right in the middle of it. And so they got the camels up to Camp Verde, and I'd say it's probably 60 miles or so from San Antonio, and they decided that they needed to give, the camels were very healthy, they did very well, and they decided they need to get, finally give them a test and start deciding if this was a good idea or not. And so the, the uh, alternative to the camel and what they were currently using for beasts of burden in the army and transportation was the mule. And so Wayne organized this experiment and he got three teams of mules with a wagon each. Now it was a six mule team. So you had 18 mules total and three wagons and he got six camels. So he gave the mules and he, the camels walk a little faster well, a lot faster. Their legs are a lot longer than the mules. So he gave the mules a head start. He loaded everybody down, and he gave the mules a head start. And so the results of that experiment were that the mules, the mule team with the wagon could pull an 1,800-pound load, and the camels could, could carry 608 pounds apiece. So the results were that three camels equals six mules in a wagon. And the other advantage was that the the camels made the trip to San Antonio in two and a half days, and it took the mule teams five days to get to San Antonio. So that was successful for the camels. Uh, there was another little incident uh, in Indianola that I want to mention. You can imagine uh, Texans have not changed. In certain things about Texas have not changed in all this time. So these people in Indianola see these camels get off and you can imagine the grief that they were given Henry Wayne and all his men with these crazy looking animals and so they were giving him a bunch of grief so Wayne decided well we're going to show this town these townspeople what's what so he gets a camel he puts him down in the loading position and he loaded two bales of hay well a bale of hay weighed 314 pounds back then and uh, so he put two bales of hay on this camel, and everybody's like, ooh, okay, uh, that's pretty strong. Well, he kind of smiled, and he put two more on there. So he had this camel with four bales of hay, 1,256 pounds, taps the camel with a stick, camel stands up and walks off. And uh, that absolutely amazed the town of Indianola, so much so that somebody in town wrote a poem about it. And I, all I know about the poem is that it appeared in the Indianola Bulletin, in 1856 so if any listeners out there can find and i've looked if you can find the poem about the camels in the indianola bulletin in 1856 please send it to me so we can put it on the website well also while those camels were still in indianola the kids had a great time riding those camels um the as part of the i suppose public relations aspect of this whole thing that they would let these kids ride these camels so one kid in particular a lady a girl named Pauline Shirky and she got a ride on a camel it was a big deal and 
So as a thank you, her mother asked Major Wayne for some of the camel hair. So she got some camel hair and made a pair of camel hair socks and had them sent to President Franklin Pierce. And Franklin Pierce was extremely grateful and wrote her a very nice letter and sent her a silver goblet in return. Now, there's no record of whether President Franklin Pierce actually wore those camel socks or not. Well, the result of all of that was that the camels had passed the test. They were had proven themselves better than mules and that they were worth, at least worth having. So eventually Major Wayne was transferred. He had to go back to Washington. When he went back to Washington, by the way, he received a medal from the Zoological Association of Paris for his work with these camels. You know, word had gotten around the world uh, that this had occurred. And so I'm going to speculate right now that that is the only U.S. Army officer to ever win a zoological medal for his work with the Army. But um, again, leave me some feedback on that if you know of any other Army officers who've won zoological medals. Well, the camels had proved their worth. Uh, they, they did a lot of um, exploring from Camp Verde. They did some expeditions. They started to put them into service. Uh, one major expedition was led by Lieutenant Edward Beale to cut a road from Fort Defiance, New Mexico to California. Now, let me, Edward Beale may sound familiar to some of you. He was very famous in the 1800s. He had uh, cut a more famous road before this. It was called Beale's Wagon Road, and that road ran from Arkansas to Los Angeles, and Beale's Wagon Road, or part of it, is now known as Route 66. Perhaps you've heard of it. Uh, He was at one time the largest private landowner in the United States. He had a ranch in California called the Tejon Ranch, which still exists, and uh, had an incredible record of government service as an ambassador and all sorts of things. Um, I'll sum it up this way. I found out that his will was witnessed by Ulysses Grant and William Sherman, so that's pretty strong. Well, uh, Beale made it to California with the camels, and uh, he wrote this about that expedition. He wrote, uh, quote, Without the aid of this noble and useful brute, many hardships which we have been spared would have fallen our lot. Our admiration for them has increased day by day, close quote. And, and Beale moved the camels onto his ranch, and he asked the government if he could just keep them, and he would give the government a bond for the camels, and the government could have them, have them back whenever they wanted. So Beale obviously became a fan of the camel. Another expedition that they were used on in Texas was to examine the Great Comanche Trail in connection with finding some better supply routes for the U.S. Army for these frontier forts that I talked about that had been built in the 50s, that line of forts. They wanted some better, more efficient supply routes, so they used the camels to um, explore that. Well, the Great Comanche Trail or the Comanche War Trail uh, ran from the high plains in Texas in the Panhandle all the way into Mexico, and it converged sort of on present day Fort Stockton, and then it forked off again. I actually, this past weekend, was on part of that Great Comanche Trail at uh, the Persimmon Gap Ranch, and I'll post some pictures of that. So uh, I'm traveling to these places for you for these episodes. So as those camels went through Fort Stockton, uh, they the mules that were on the expedition needed to eat. They had to have hay, but the camels loved mesquite, which is a darn good thing for a Texas camel to love, and they loved the cat claw, and they loved all those things that grow uh, naturally in Texas. The bitter, the more bitter the weed, 
the better a camel liked it. Well, that was a huge advantage for Texas. So while they're trying to ship food in for these mules, camels will eat just about anything. Another On that expedition, another thing that happened was a rattlesnake bit one of these camels, and they put some ammonia on it and some other things on it, and there was no, absolutely no effect on this camel whatsoever. Well, again, huge advantage to the camel. It proved perfect for Texas. Um, now, another person that saw these camels during this time was Robert E. Lee, and he served for Texas for quite a while, and he dealt with the camels uh, about 1857. He wrote, um, had written about seeing them in San Antonio. Uh, there were there were two shipments of camels. Remember I said the supply went back for more. The supply returned uh, with more camels, and Robert E. Lee had seen the second shipment. And as the when he was commanding the Texas Department of the U.S. Army, he ordered those camels to participate in some more exploratory expeditions, just like that one on the Great Comanche Trail. And one of those expeditions got caught in the desert for several days without water. It was really a dangerous situation for those men. I read an account of this expedition, and they were four or five days without water, and they were in a bad, bad situation. They finally recovered, uh, but many of the men had to drop out of that expedition, and many of the mules had to drop out of that expedition, but not a single camel had to drop out of that expedition. Uh, So Robert E. Lee had pronounced the camel a complete success in Texas. Well, shortly after that, the Civil War broke out, and when Texas seceded, became a part of the Confederate States, Uh, They took over Camp Verde, and they got a receipt from the commander for 28 camels, uh, but the the Confederates didn't use the camels really at all, and many of the camels wandered off. Uh, They did use, uh, there is one report of a caravan of camels down to Brownsville. Remember, they were finding ways to get cotton out of the Confederate States of America because there was a naval blockade, so one of the ways they would do it is run the cotton down to Brownsville and get it out through the Rio Grande. Uh, So they did use the camels for that. Uh, The camels were breeding, however. They were not taking their time off. And after the war, after the Civil War, when the U.S. took Camp Verde back over, uh, they had left with 28 camels. They came back to about 100 camels. Uh, But unfortunately, the enthusiasm for the use of the camel had worn off by this time in the U.S. Army, and they offered them for sale. Well, there was a gentleman named Bethel Coopwood, and Bethel Coopwood had been a Confederate officer, and he bought 66 of those camels, and he was a lawyer. He was a historian. He had spent a little time in Mexico after the war. Now, spent a little time is sort of a generous thing to say. He had fled to Mexico because he had been a Confederate officer, and so when the Confederacy surrendered. Coopwood hauled it to Mexico. Uh, but he came back, bought 66 of those camels, and he wanted to use the camels to run freight from Texas to Mexico City. And you'll read that part of the story, but I dug a little deeper, and here's what I found out. Coopwood had actually taken 14 camels to Mexico during the war, and he had got, he had acquired them. Remember, the Confederates weren't using them, so the Confederate government gave Coopwood these 14 camels and gave him title. And so he took them all, he took them to Mexico. Uh, but when the U.S. took back over Camp Verde and realized that he had taken these 
14 camels. They declared it stolen property. And so after he had bought his 66, taken them to Mexico to join his, uh, at least at one point, legally obtained 14 camels, uh, the U.S. government seized them. He brought those camels back to Texas to run that freight line, and he, the government seized them and said they were all stolen contraband. And uh, they took them from him, and they took them to Arizona, and they let them go. And so you had a bunch of wild camels over there from Texas, over in Arizona all of a sudden. And as late as 1905, they were still wandering around Nevada and Arizona. Uh, now, many of the camels ended up in, in circuses. They ended up in zoos. Uh, there was one very interesting camel sighting I want to tell you about in Fort Selden, New Mexico. There was a five-year-old boy who was the son of the post commander, and he recalled seeing a strange-looking beast. This is his writing. Uh, strange-looking beast with long neck, shambling legs, and a bobbing head wandering out of the desert and onto the post. And some of the soldiers thought, well, those camels are native to Texas because they had obviously heard that they had been there. But other soldiers had remembered that they were actually imported to Texas at one time and that those were those Texas camels. Well, that young boy was the son of the post commander, Captain Arthur MacArthur, and his name was Douglas. Yes, it was that Douglas MacArthur who sighted that camel in New Mexico. Well, there were several other sightings of camels um, continuing into the 1900s. There's writing about roundups on the Via Dury Ranch in South Texas uh, where they would be rounding cattle up and all of a sudden look out and there'd be a couple of camels. And uh, on some ranches in Refurio in the 1870s, there's some accounts of camels wandering around. Uh, there's one account in 1891 of uh, going down in, King in the Kingsville area uh, in the sandy soil, they were looking for burrows to round up, and they ended up seeing some camels. Uh, there was a wild herd of camels in Arizona as late as 1924, no doubt from the Coopwood camels that were taken over there. Uh, another 1913 railroad report, a railroad crew was on the rails and saw camels from the train. And there's one story that the... Now remember, the, uh, some of those camels ended up in California, and they ended up there with uh, Edward Beale on his ranch. Well, apparently the last uh, of that group of Texas camels and the last allegedly of the Texas camels at all was a camel named Topsy who lived in the L.A. Zoo until 1934. And we're going to call Topsy the last of the Texas camels. So raise your glass to Topsy and the Texas Camel Corps. You know, the railroad soon took over the transportation needs of the country, and the camel ended up going the way of the buffalo. But in their time, they proved themselves excellent for Texas and excellent for the United States. And it was really the Civil War that interrupted that. I think we'd uh, have a lot more camels around or had have a lot more stories about working camels uh, had the Civil War not broken out. So we'll never know, uh, but that's the story of the Texas Camel Corps. Well, now we come to the part of the episode called Getting There, where I tell you how to go to some of the places that we mentioned in the episode. The first thing I want to talk about, the big one, is Indianola. 
Indianola is on the coast of Texas, just south of Port Lavaca. If you will go down Highway 59 near Victoria and go, we'll start from Victoria, go south on Highway 87 into Port Lavaca and then find your way to Highway 316 and that will lead you down near Powderhorn Lake and Indianola. There's a monument to LaSalle because he landed there in the 1500s and there are several historical markers including one dedicated to Angelina Eberly who we've talked about in other episodes. You'll recall she died in Indianola and was buried there. Uh, there's not much left of the town. There's a granite marker with the, where the courthouse was. Uh, but if you, you can stand right on the edge of the bay and look out over the bay and be where these camels were. There's also a monument to the camels, and I'll post a picture of that on the website. In San Antonio, San Pedro Springs Park, the oldest park in the state, oldest state park, uh, is located at 1315 San Pedro Avenue, and that is roughly the area where those camels were. Now, it's going to look a lot different today, obviously, but out there in San Pedro Park around the springs, you'll see uh, where those camels camped, and you'll see uh, where that Jack Hayes Comanche Rodeo was. So head over there, and, and what you'll realize when you get over there is how close to town that really was. Well, Camp Verde is still around. It's located south of Kerrville, and Camp Verde has a store and a restaurant, and it's located on Highway 173 between Bandera and Kerrville, Texas. So go up to Camp Verde and check it out. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Wise About Texas. I hope you'll consider supporting the show. You can do so at www.patreon.com slash wiseabouttexas. If you think this show's worth a buck or two, throw one our way. If you're a patron of the show, you'll get some bonus content. And the patrons of this uh, of the show now are going to get a bonus episode with another great camel story involving Galveston and Houston that virtually nobody has heard. So think about that. Uh, go like and share our Facebook page, Wise About Texas. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wise About Texas. And leave a review on iTunes if you get a minute. Well, thanks for listening to this episode. Do something for Texas today. And until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road. Mm-hmm.